possible that we might see record viewing the figures. Shows renewed in May. Uh, having to reduce their advertising out there as well. pretty positive for the game. That has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of the AMP Podcast. My name is Ed Border, and I'll be hosting today, where we've got a really exciting and varied lineup of guests speaking across the TV, sport, and games industries. In this episode, we are first going to speak to Guy Bisson, who will be discussing the impact of streaming on legacy media. Following that, we'll be talking to Dan Harrogy, who will be helping us understand the economics behind the recently attempted Football Super League. And last, but by no means least, will be Louise Shorthouse, who will be explaining the causes of churn among subscription gaming subscribers across the world. So I'd like to start with Guy. Great to have you on. Uh, In your most recent research, you've been looking at the state of legacy media and have argued that the legacy media value chain is being dismantled. Uh, Could you just explain, to start off with, what you mean by this? So how is value shifting across the media business uh, and what stage are we currently at in this transition? Yeah, hi Ed. Thanks for that. Um, I think it's it's less about the value chain uh, totally being dismantled and more about shifting positions within Windows and shifting shifting power balance. And then the bit I guess that's being dismantled is the way that content flows from production businesses through the various windows of exploitation. So coming to those windows individually, there's been one area that has grown significantly over the last decade, and that is subscription television in all of its forms. And that now, of course, encompasses streaming television. At the same time, home entertainment has shrunk. Theatrical, uh, last year at least, has shrunk, although we expect some recovery there. And free TV has stayed about the same proportionally as a contributor to the overall global revenue pie that is the audiovisual value chain. So massive growth in subscription. And as of last year, a re-engineering of the theatrical, some of which will continue into this year and next, which means that the power balance has shifted fundamentally. That's really interesting to think about that that shift. But I suppose it's still true that a lot of the existing revenue for the big kind of traditional media companies is still tied up in things like theatrical or TV carriage deals. So as this shift to subscription continues to advance, what kind of levels of subscriptions do, do these companies need to achieve in order to totally potentially replace existing uh, revenues from, from legacy media? Yeah, so what the report looks at is is effectively saying, look, these companies have now gone direct. Where does that position them in terms of the future of media? And I think if we asked ourselves that question one year ago, we probably would have said that complete revenue replacement of their legacy businesses, so from the theatrical window forward, effectively, was a bit of a tall order. But we've since seen the uh, bump that's been given to the streaming market by COVID. And we've also got about a year's worth of data out of Disney Plus, which I think it's fair to say has exceeded everybody's expectations. And what the report is looking at is then, okay, take the other content businesses, the big Hollywood majors, 
and look at what they would need to do, not to replace some of their business, but to effectively replace the entire theatrical business, the entire content licensing business, and the entire traditional pay TV business. And and what that data shows, even with a 30% discount for the assumption of sales tax and some wholesale deals with platforms, that they'd need to get to about the same size or a little smaller in some cases that Netflix is today and that Disney Plus is today after just 12 months. And I think when you, you put in that sort of scale on it, it suddenly doesn't seem like such a big task especially given the changes that we've seen in consumer behavior, attitudes towards streaming, and those window shifts that I talked about earlier. That makes perfect sense. Um, and I think you're, you're right that it doesn't seem like such a big task on, a, on an individual basis, though obviously for everyone to do it together could, could be a challenge. One thing we've sort of seen coming up more recently then is, is services starting to adopt more of a hybrid strategy, uh, particularly HBO Max recently announcing that it's um, going to have an advertising tier. How does this sort of fit into the equation as well? So not just pure subscription, but also an ad-funded models from, from these new studio platforms? Yeah, it does. It does many, many things. So first of all, to to point out in the way that I've looked at the data, I've actually excluded where possible the ad supported portions of these businesses, because I think that's on a different transitionary pathway. But you're absolutely right that the studio direct platforms almost universally have adopted a hybrid model. To me, that's a great advantage for a number of reasons. Firstly, it creates an entry point that is zero cost. And in a crowded market, that's an incredibly important thing. Entry cost into a platform that, let's face it, is not necessarily a consumer-facing brand, although you could argue that clearly Disney is a consumer-facing brand, but is Warner, is NBC Universal, perhaps less so. So pulling people in at no cost is is crucial to the overall strategy of going direct. But the other thing is it plays to the strengths of these businesses. They are already in the free TV business. They are already in the advertising sales business, not just domestically, but internationally. And leveraging some of the expertise that they have in that as they transition to streaming is going to be crucial to their success. And let's not forget that we're not talking about a switch that gets flicked overnight and suddenly we've moved from legacy to streaming. This is a transition that's going to happen over the course of many, many years. And to use the strengths that they have, and advertising sales is one of them, is absolutely key to that strategy being a success. You mentioned there the strengths of the studios. I mean, obviously, the biggest strength, arguably, is is in their content. So as we sort of move to potentially new models, um, how sort of equipped is, is studio content to make this transition to sort of new business models or, or new forms of delivery? And what potential impact do you think this will have on the content creation business as a whole? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Content is the number one point that I make in the report about the strength of these businesses. If we think back to Netflix, Great business, strategically brilliant, has changed the entire global television market in all sorts of ways. But they had a massive hole in their strategy, and that hole was content. Now, they've been playing catch-up ever since, and the volumes of content that they're making is absolutely astronomical. And that's absolutely right. They need to be doing that. But the studios have always done original content. 
Not only that, they have massive investments in franchisable content and in character IP, intellectual property. So they've got a, a font of material to draw on in terms of fan base friendly uh, characters, in terms of long running franchise for, from which you can spin off content. Mandalorian, of course, being a key example. Studios have always done original. Again, a, a, a word that we associate with Netflix, but that's what studios have done since 1920. They're very, very strong in content. They don't have to go out from a standing start and get their production ramped up to cope with a global market. Of course, what it does mean is they start pulling back from other players, and that has impact further down the value chain. But in terms of being well positioned to leverage that very strong content, they're already there. And our data using a new metric from Ampere, popularity ranking, shows that studio content ranks more highly than Netflix originals on average. And that's a very, very compelling proposition. So it all sounds really promising from that perspective for, for the studios. But is there anything that they need to do in the coming years structurally to kind of maximize their, their chances of success? And I suppose also more widely, you know, as this transition occurs, are there any other parts of the industry that you think are potentially set to benefit uh, from this move from legacy media? Yeah, so I, th- I think the, the, the businesses of the, as they've evolved over the last 30 years, um, clearly some restructuring is necessary. And, and we're already seeing that with Disney and Warner, who've, who've both announced significant uh, reorganization plans to focus on what is now a, a, a truly global market. I think it's fair to say they've been heavily focused on domestic uh, for, for obvious reasons. The US is a hugely valuable market. And now it's about rethinking what previously was called international, but now is just the business. It's a global business, and we're not going back from that. Um, question over how different divisions of these businesses as they've evolved fit together. So I think what I'm talking about when I talk about rethinking legacy is rethinking the parts of the business that are well-positioned for a global footprint. And so that draws into question how well-positioned the portions that are necessarily single market fit into that equation. And that would be infrastructure-based businesses like cable and satellite investments. So there's some thinking around how those two portions of the business play into each other, support each other, or potentially come into conflict with one another. And then there's about rethinking how one targets content production to feed back into your own platforms. And I think that's the fundamental shift that will knock on effect on others is that content that previously flowed through these windows from theatrical to subscription to pay TV increasingly will be restricted at source. Not entirely. We're not going to see a shutdown of theatrical. We're not going to see a shutdown of traditional pay TV. But as that source gets restricted at the beginning of that chain, more and more players will need to be creating their own original content. And so to the second part of your question, where will we see a kind of knock-on effect or a knock-on benefit, if you like? Clearly, the production boom that we're seeing is going to continue for some time to come. And that production boom is increasingly global in its outlook, and that is of benefit to everyone within that sector and, and within that industry. So depending on which part of the value chain you're looking at, very, very, very different impacts stemming from this shift to direct from the people at the very beginning of the content value chain. It's a fundamental shift. 
thanks, Guy. That's a re- really fascinating and, and far-reaching discussion and based on a very, very interesting report. So thanks so much for joining us to, to talk through it. So moving on, we're going to have a chat with Dan Harrogy about the Super League. Uh, unless you've been sort of hiding under a rock, it would have been hard to miss a uh, discussion of the Super League in the past few weeks. It, it seems to have been everywhere and seems to have united the, the entire nation. Um, but Dan, just, just to start off with, for the benefit of listeners who, who may not be aware or who may not be aware of the, the full facts, could you just briefly summarize what the Super League is and some of the kind of recent events surrounding it? Yeah, sure. So, so essentially on the 18th of April, 12 of the biggest European football clubs announced that they were establishing a new breakaway competition and it was going to be called the Super League. It was meant to be a rival competition to the UEFA Champions League, which is currently the top European club tournament. And these 12 teams were due to grow to 15 founding members who would be guaranteed a place in the competition each season. And then five other teams would qualify through performances in their domestic leagues. And pretty much the main idea behind it uh, was that the best or at least more high profile teams would play against each other on a more regular basis. Um, And then the clubs involved, because there was no external governing body, they would have more power over the governance and also the finances of the competition. But unfortunately for them, the, the fact that they were essentially trying to create a closed shop where there was no real relegation or promotion and clubs wouldn't qualify based on merit each season meant that the Super League was hugely unpopular with everyone in football. So it became opposed by fans, by governing bodies, players, managers uh, and even politicians, actually. So in the following days after it was announced, the 12 clubs started to withdraw again from the proposal and eventually the Super League suspended all of its plans. So I suppose while there were many potential reasons why each of the clubs sort of broke away or why, why they chose to launch this league, uh, things such as debt or potential uh, competition in the home markets, one of the factors that your report looks at was uh, managing the revenue risk from existing European competition. Could you just outline this to us and explain what you meant and perhaps sort of explain why some of the clubs have an issue with the current Champions League system as it is? Yeah, so so the issues from these top clubs came down mainly to the way that UEFA currently distributes revenues to teams who play in the Champions League. So while teams who make it into the competition receive a fixed fee uh, for participating, and that's the same for all teams, the majority of payments from UEFA are allocated based on performances in that season. So for example, teams who make it to the final uh, will receive more than those who go out in the group stages, for example. And then if a team misses out completely, they'll go into the Europa League, which is the second tier competition. And again, revenues drop down uh, naturally because uh, that Europa League generates less revenue than the Champions League. So, we, for example, in our report, we looked at Tottenham Hotspur. And in the 2014-15 season, Tottenham played in the Europa League and only made £5 million from UEFA that season. And then in contrast, in 2018 to 2019, they actually reached the final of the Champions League. And in that year, their revenue from UEFA was £94 million, so nearly £90 million more. So it kind of highlights how dramatically a team's performance in European competitions can impact its revenue currently. So basically, the Super League's aim was to create a more consistent revenue stream for clubs. So owners would be able to to limit the financial risks of underperforming on the pitch. 
that makes perfect sense. Um, obviously, any business would be alarmed at potentially having 20 or 30% of its revenue at risk every year. Um, so how would the proposed Super League system have replaced these revenues? Um, and, and what would the potential financial implications have been for the breakaway clubs? Uh, I mean, one of the big things that we've sort of heard about were, were broadcast right valuations. So what, what kind of valuations would the new rights have been worth? And do we think that was achievable? In terms of the competition's broadcast revenue, so the Super League reportedly hoped that it would bring in at least €3 billion per season. And that's more than, say, the Champions League brought in in 2018-19, which was the last year uh, that wasn't affected by the pandemic. And it brought in €2.4 billion. In terms of whether that was viable or not, um, for that to be achievable, the competition would have had to redirect revenue from the current domestic and European leagues, um, as well as capitalising on attracting other markets, which at the moment may be less invested in European football. So, for example, the US and China. Um, but given what we've seen from, from how negative the reaction was to the tournament, it's definitely debatable whether enough broadcast revenue would have been freed up from these other competitions uh, for the Super League to actually reach those goals. Um, and that's especially given how how negative the reaction to, to the league was from fans. So that would have in turn impacted the, the brand perception of the league's broadcasters. So the league itself would have faced a very difficult challenge to generate that kind of revenue. Yeah, and actually, as, as it turned out, when the Super League was announced, a broadcast partner hadn't been identified, so it's hard to sort of say who that would have also been in practice. But just sort of thinking about it then more, more generally, you mentioned the sort of potential impact on the existing rights deals. Obviously, the Super League was looking to essentially compete with the Champions League, but what kind of impact or knock-on effects would it have had on sort of domestic leagues and existing competitions across football? And how would that have affected broadcast rights for other clubs, not just the 12 clubs that were attempting to break away? Yeah, so we've, we've already mentioned the Champions League and obviously these founding members would never have played in, in the Champions League again. So that competition would no longer have had some of the best teams in the world taking part in it. And actually that would have dramatically impacted the value of, of that competition and fans would have started to lose interest in it. And then in terms of domestic competitions, so those Super League clubs came from the Premier League, La Liga and Serie A. And I mean, the fact that they were now essentially competing in a, a closed shop would have meant that the domestic leagues became so much less competitive. And as a result of that, the uh, the value of the leagues would have driven down significantly. And then that would have resulted in a decrease in broadcast revenue. And actually, as for the clubs outside of the Super League, they generate a very large proportion of their revenue from the league's broadcast money. So as the value of those leagues would start to fall, so would the money being handed down to these clubs. So there would have been a trickle down effect, definitely, that would have impacted the rest of the footballing world as, as that money would have been even further directed to those top few teams. Depending on your perspective, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, when all was said and done, uh, clubs were not successful in forming the Super League this time round. But it's obviously been a long-term goal, or at least it's been mooted by many of these clubs for a number of years. So what do you think sort of happens next um, following the kind of the events of the last couple of weeks? Do you think the Super League is a viable option for the future? And do you think we'll see it reappear um, in the next couple of years? It's a system that we've seen work in the US, for example. So most major professional sports in the States have a model like the Super Leagues would have been. But in terms of European football, we've already spoken about how much it would impact existing competitions. So it's hard to see how it might overcome those kind of hurdles. And now, especially that it's failed, 
Uh, I'd expect to see that these existing organizations would work to prevent something like this actually happening again. And in fact, that's actually already started to happen. So the Premier League very recently introduced new regulations that included an owner's charter. So that meant that all club owners will have to sign to agree to essentially the league's core values that will make it so much more difficult for them to break away again. And again, we've seen such a strong backlash from fans as well. So, I mean, just at the weekend, there was a protest at Manchester United, which actually forced the club to postpone its game against Liverpool. So I don't think owners will want to to cause more controversy at the moment. And I'd expect that this idea will go away for a while. In many ways, the Super League has kind of been the ultimate threat of, of the biggest clubs for the last sort of five to ten years. So they've almost used their joker card now and it, it'll disappear for a little while. Sadly, as a, as a QPR fan, my team weren't invited to join the Super League this time around, but hopefully in the future we'll, uh, we'll be in the running. Thanks, Dan. Uh, really appreciated your, your input on this. Uh, and finally, we turn to Louise Shorthouse, who's been looking at the impact of churn on subscription gaming services across the world, studying 12 different markets from our consumer survey. Uh, Louise, um, you've been focusing a lot recently on, on churn. Uh, is this an increasing issue that you've observed for subscription gaming services? Uh, and what kind of level has it reached across the industry? Thanks, Ed. Yeah, so I definitely think churn is an increasing issue for service providers. The number of subscription services in the game space is still relatively small compared to more mature entertainment sectors like TV and online video. And as services expand and multiply, more users are going to be churning out in order to move to new ones as they gradually emerge. Existing services are also constantly building up their catalogues. Um, and something like the addition of a single, extremely popular title could drive users out of one service and into another. So one of the churn reasons we include for respondents to select is... I only subscribe to play a specific game. And this was amongst the most common reasons for people leaving. One big title is obviously not enough though, um, because most games have limited replayability, if you like. So services need to continuously provide attractive content to retain users. Churn is probably exacerbated by the newness of these services. So we see highly attractive introductory offers such as $1 for one month on Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, for example, because of a huge drive towards user acquisition. But such low prices will encourage a lot of consumers who are just simply not intending to be long-term subscribers from the start, so they will drop out rapidly. I understand that particularly you focused in your report on Xbox Game Pass Ultimate and PlayStation Now, which are obviously among the biggest uh, global subscription game services. Um, what did you find? Sort of how, how do churn rates vary between the services? Are there any sort of particular reasons that are specific to either service, or are there any commonalities between them? Yeah, so although there were some broad similarities in terms of these two services, the most common churn reasons did actually differ. So the number one most common reason why subscribers left PlayStation Now was because they didn't enjoy the games available. PlayStation Now actually has the largest catalogue of all the games subscription services, um, so it has more than 800 titles. Because of that, I suppose it might seem odd that so many consumers are citing a lack of enjoyable content. But in reality, new and really kind of sought after releases are not added for some time. So the bulk of the catalogue is made up of historic games. The second most common churn reason for PlayStation Now was consumers perceiving the service as poor value for money. The service is actually priced very similarly to other subscription offerings in the game space. So it's not comparably expensive or anything. Um, and so it's possible that this again points towards um, an unsatisfying content library, especially because so much of this library is from previous console generations. On the other hand, for Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, users most commonly churn because their friends were on other services. So Game Pass Ultimate includes Xbox Live Gold, which enables online multiplayer. 
And this perhaps reflects the nature of the Xbox brand as secondary to PlayStation globally. The desire to play with friends was obviously greatly enhanced by the pandemic when people were more often physically separate. Xbox actually does offer occasional Xbox Live free play days, they call them, where subscribers can play fully featured games for free, um, along with friends who are not subscribers. So what this shows us is that there is an awareness of the importance of social play, but that more still needs to be done. It's, it's really interesting that there are, there are so many differences between these sort of two major services. Uh, one thing I'd kind of like to know a bit more about, actually, is we, we surveyed 12 countries in our consumer data. Were the reasons you gave consistent geographically, or were there any differences between certain markets, either kind of culturally or based on the catalogs that are available in different countries? Sure. So for Game Pass Ultimate, we actually see much higher stickiness in Xbox's strongest markets. So that would be the US and Mexico. And these were the only markets where paying subscribers outweighed churn subscribers. So in other territories, um, countries across Europe and Asia in particular, PlayStation typically has a much stronger brand presence. So fewer people own and use Xbox consoles. Game Pass Ultimate is a multi-device service, so it's not just for console exclusively. But what this shows is how popular the service is among these Xbox console gamers specifically. So it seems that consumers outside the Xbox ecosystem are certainly being tempted in by the introductory offers that I mentioned before, but they're quickly churning out in markets where Xbox has a weaker presence. It's actually a similar story with PlayStation Now, in terms of the service being much stronger in its domestic market. Churn is uh, particularly low in Japan, and the PlayStation Now catalogue is largely made up of Japanese publishers who naturally produce titles which appeal more to the domestic audience. We can also already see subscription service fatigue in the consumer responses, but this was most prominent in Western markets. So in the US and France, for example, a higher number of respondents said they left PS Now because they had too many subscription services. This also perhaps suggests that consumers in the West are placing less value on the PS Now service. Um, they view it as maybe more disposable, less of a core or necessary service compared to the Japanese users, and other offers may actually be taking precedent. So it sounds like the real challenge or one of the real challenges being faced is trying to essentially reach outside of your existing sort of longer term user base to really kind of grow your service. Uh, one of the things that you that you also mentioned is cloud streaming. Um, I'd be interested, uh, how much of a factor is sort of the cloud streaming experience with regards to the kind of churn that we're, that we're picking up? So on both of these services, there is some form of cloud streaming option. But when this consumer research was carried out, cloud gaming on Game Pass Ultimate was only available in beta and on mobile, so it was actually very limited at the time. So for this, let's take PS Now as the example. So when accessing PS Now on a PC, cloud streaming is the only option for play, so the games can't be downloaded. Only 3% of churned users claim to have left due to a poor streaming experience, and this was actually the least common reason. In our game's consumer research, we also ask about sentiment towards subscription services. And from this data, we can see that more than two-thirds of PS Now subscribers agreed or strongly agreed that the cloud streaming technology works well. So combined, these results seem to suggest that although it has quite a limited use at the moment, the cloud streaming experience is generally quite positive, and it's certainly not a key or core reason for subscriber churn. Sounds like the services are really, really sort of performing well then on that front. So I suppose just to finish off, kind of in light of everything that we that we've just mentioned, what do you think, in your opinion, that subscription services should be focusing on in the near future to potentially try and reduce these churn rates? As we always say, and as 
Guy said earlier, content is obviously king. Uh, it's hugely important, especially a strong and transparent pipeline, I think, so people have a reason to stick around. We actually see a lot of the same titles popping up um, across multiple services. So ultimately, anything the service provider can do to differentiate itself from the competition could help to hold consumer interest. Unfortunately, this is something that is far easier um, for large companies like Sony and Microsoft to do, given they already own a lot of popular IP and paying for exclusivity can be very expensive. Smaller platforms and startups will need to be a lot more creative in how they approach churn reduction. Many services also offer added extras, things like discounts on full game purchases, and respondents indicated in our consumer research that they do actually really appreciate these. So maintaining the cadence and the quality of bonus offers and perks is also very important. I've already mentioned the importance of social play and the even greater emphasis that is placed on it now. So anything that the service providers can do to enhance or streamline the social gaming experience would be hugely positive. Creating and nurturing a community can really encourage users to stay on board. I also think that being able to appeal to families is a great strength. Uh, again, in our consumer research, many subscribers indicated that the service they had chosen was used by all the family. And so expanding to include more family-friendly content or perhaps just more titles for younger players may also be a way to improve stickiness. Thanks, Louise. It's, it's a really exciting time, actually, especially with sort of subscription gaming taking off so rapidly. It's, it's really interesting to see these services kind of at the early stage of their lifespan, trying to work out how to evolve and, and really grow amongst consumers. So yeah, thank you, Louise, so much for, for going through that with us. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Uh, thanks to each of our guests today for coming on. Uh, Guy for explaining the challenges and opportunities that uh, transitioning legacy media revenues is generating. Dan for helping us better understand the financial implications and viability of a potential Super League. And to Louise for explaining the different factors that subscription gaming services need to work on in order to reduce churn. For more information on Ampere's analysis and reports, please head to amperanalysis.com where you can find all of the reports that have been discussed today on this podcast or get in touch at info at Please also remember to hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes of The Amp. Thanks for listening. Thank you.